0: Deep in the imagination, there's a crossroads, a space where curiosity and inspiration intersect and give birth to ideas. A space where music, science fiction, comic books, and pop culture inform the mind of what is and what could be. This is
1: Jeff Boucher's Mind Space. In each episode, legendary journalist Jeff Boucher welcomes the biggest names in genre entertainment for an expansive dive into all things
0: pop culture journey with jeff as he explores the latest news and recommendations of the hottest releases across entertainment with his most trusted confidants
1: you are now entering deep space heavy metal presents jeff boucher's mind space Hi, welcome to Mindspace. Uh, This is Jeff Boucher. I'm here with Maya St. Clair. And this week we're talking to Matthew Robbins. Uh, He is the director and writer of Dragon Slayer. It's the anniversary of that great fantasy film. Uh, We're going to revisit that movie. And uh, just for a little context, uh, he is also the writer of Corvette Summer, uh, which a lot of people remember with Mark Hamill, Uh, The Legend of Billie Jean, which he directed as well back in 1985. And one of my favorites, Batteries Not Included, 1987. Uh, more recently, uh, Matthew also was the writer of Crimson Peak, uh, which Guillermo del Toro fans will remember as a great dip into some sort of classic horror settings. So we'll be talking today to Matt, and we'll get right to it.
2: So, and I was asking, uh, are, are the Bouchers uh, from France? They must be.
1: No, you know, I'll tell you this. It's, it's a slightly embarrassing because uh, it it's, it's, uh, speaks to the grifters in my, uh, my background, I think. Uh, I'm told that uh, uh, I learned this when I was 27 that my last name is actually Boucher uh, and that I have no French uh, ancestry at all, uh, <laughs> that my father liked the way it sounded. Uh, and uh, so at that point, I decided to just learn to love the lie because <laughs> <laughs> Boucher so, just didn't seem to be as it seemed indelicate after all those years
2: it, it, we um until the virus hit we uh, we normally uh divide our time between the usa and france and we have a place in france and we spend about half the year there and a lot of French friends, and both my wife and I are French speakers. Boucher, as you know, is uh, the butcher, and uh, the yeah. boucherie is where you go to buy your meat and all that. So I was convinced that I was gonna do part of this in French, but I guess not. <laughs>
1: you know, you can, and I'll just, uh, keeping, keeping with the tradition, I'll just pretend I understand, uh, <laughs> and then it'll just be part of the uh, the ongoing scam, you know,
2: so, uh, Well, yeah, you know, I, Jeff, I, I have to tell you that um, this is the second time in just uh, the last couple of months, uh, that I became aware of, well, through you, first of all, that it was an anniversary for Dragon Slayer. It had never even occurred to me. Yeah. And the other thing that had happened was just a few weeks ago, I was contacted by three or four podcaster fan kind of things because, oh, what is it now? It's the fiftieth anniversary of THX eleven thirty eight, and even though I was not seriously involved in the feature film version at all it's evidently very well known out there on the websites that i was involved in the student film with george and all the rest of it so i had to do a bunch of interviews because george won't won't do them anymore he says he just gets in trouble (laughs) (laughs) But, um, but i you know that's just uh it's kind of a shock yeah
1: that's really interesting isn't it like uh it's it's funny how uh things uh uh, arrive and how things age and and uh, sometimes they come back to us differently was um, dragon is is dragon flare something that you look back on with a lot of fondness?
2: uh largely yes and um, because it was a um, an interesting challenging production and we met most of the challenges uh, and I, I had some challenges that i I, I, I got out by the skin of my teeth, but was happy to have done so. Uh, the um, less happy memory is that um, after having made that movie, um, the uh, distributor, Paramount, was distributing in the United States. They, uh, the head of distribution never really liked the movie, really? <laughs> which, which kind of <laughs> doesn't help wow and so and so I I was and I was very inexperienced about that I didn't recognize the signs he practically had to (laughs) say it to my face for me to get and even then the meaning of it didn't sink in and so it never really um uh had much of an impact at the box office although it has fans today
0: oh yeah
2: um and so when I look back on it um I have I have mixed feelings on that sort because it was a very hard movie to make. It was a very, very. Uh, this is, of course, in the dark ages, uh, literally. <laughs> yeah. And um, to pull it off, we had to combine all these techniques, some of which were kind of experimental go motion, particularly was one yeah. of them. And um, so uh, and I love working with the English. Uh, cruise at Pinewood, all that. So I, and I have to say, my kids were young there. We were, my wife is English. And so she was home. Okay. And that was a big success. And uh, so I saw a lot of her family. And so there are many, many happy memories about the production itself. And uh, um, I think that uh, it was an interesting mix in the cast. I, I, and I, I especially valued my relationship with Sir Ralph Richardson.
1: I mean, that's extraordinary. I that's the first thing that uh uh I wanted to ask you about really, is just because uh, it's such an extraordinary performance and but such an extraordinary actor and and the career. Um and it, the people that uh interacted with him, I've often seen them talk about how charismatic and, and uh powerful his personality
2: was. He was a very uh very interesting person and uh um we it took us a few weeks to actually become real colleagues really? uh, I think he felt um, a little uh, at first um, out of sorts to be surrounded by Americans American sensibility he didn't know what that was going to be like um, he didn't always agree with my ideas and uh, but I was always interested in his but there was a, but there was there was a um something of a uh, breakthrough after two or three weeks, he decided that this could be fun Uh and that uh, we could actually get along. And by way of, um, he'd he'd had some difficulty uh, 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 a day or two before with an extended scene in which he had trouble with his lines. I think he was embarrassed. It wasn't serious. We worked around it, but um, he came to me a couple of days later and he had, A gift for me which was a beautiful uh, kind of expensive uh, briar pipe wow Uh, he was a pipe smoker and i never seriously got into pipe smoking but i had an interest in it (laughs) just and he it was like a peace pipe that's how we joked about it gave me this pipe and um tobacco for it too (coughs) um, this tobacco, and and after that, I began spending a lot of time while we were waiting for these complicated setups to be lit. Uh-huh. I spent a lot of time with him in his trailer. That's interesting. And, and we, and he was very, very strange and wonderfully eccentric, but in the best way, he, he had kept a um, little white rat in his <laughs> wow. pocket. Really? Yeah. Wow. Rat, ratty, and he would he would bring the rat out. And the rat would run up and down his arm, and you could hold it and pet it. It was a lovely little white rat with pink eyes. <laughs> <laughs> and he, he he also was um, um, very interested in all things mechanical with regard to our production, and so we had occasionally oh, okay. big set pieces and um, uh, full size dragon parts. Right. And he was, he was very interested in that. And, and we shot a lot of the, um, what used to be called plates, that is to say, um, <laughs> the visual elements had to be um, composited against you know, high resolution backgrounds. And we shot those in division, hmm. which is an old camera process where the film ran sideways
0: hmm. through the camera, eight wow. person. That-
2: and, and, and ILM, ILM had done, the, did the special effects and they had resurrected a number of these old VistaVision cameras, which is a thing from the late 50s, early 60s, when television was threatening the movie industry. Sure. You know, remember Todd A. all these old formats. And so he was just fascinated by the VistaVision camera, and he especially loved it when it broke down. Oh, <laughs> it's trying to figure
1: out how to fix it, or
2: yes, yes, he would no. go running up to the camera, and there was a you know, there was a contingent from ILM, these American tech people who were there in the event that something like that would happen.
0: Uh-huh. And
2: where's Ralph? And you look over, and there he was with the, the group clustered around, you know, with their tools trying to get the, the camera work again. So he he had a very um, um, sly charm about him he, he he was um and he was very uh particular about the text every word challenged yeah. me, yeah yeah oh uh, yeah he was very particular about why this word and not that one and all the rest of it
1: when you say that there was a, a point where he uh uh kind of either flubbed a line or uh, couldn't retrieve it was it was it the the fact that he stumbled that kind of turned him around, or was it the way that you responded to that stumble, or was it uh, unrelated? Do you think
2: um, he was seventy-nine years of age, uh-huh. which is, I'm nearing. I'm closing in on that myself now. <laughs> which is funny. He had um, a little palsy okay. in his head and neck, which he was very worried about, uh-huh. which I think. Contributed to his discomfort in the first couple of weeks, although it was never a serious issue at all. I mean, right. and 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 it was very hard for me to convince him that.
1: Oh, that's interesting.
2: And um, th- what you're asking about is uh, something where, in my naivete, because it was a it was still the early days that we were on location in Wales. Sure. And we had a couple of pages of dialogue with Peter McNichol outside, and I decided to do it and you know, big, long shot, you know, roaming around the landscape with his castle in the background, yeah. very scenic. And uh, I laid it out with uh, his uh, stand-in. And we had a lot of dolly track. It was an elaborate setup and he's no fool. He, he, I brought him out to do the shot and the idea that he was going to be walking on unstable ground, uh-huh. And do, you know, a page and a half. Yeah. He 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 attempted it and he it was, was unsure of his footing I and his it. lines. And as soon as I, we had invested, you know, the morning. Yeah. And I said, let's just stop. And and I took him back to his truck. I said, I don't want you to even think we're going to go, you know, grab something to eat. We'll get this after lunch. And I completely reconfigured it and we broke it down and we simplified it and um,
1: you were distrust when
2: you did that he that's when I got the pipe <laughs> yeah
1: yeah, yeah he was,
2: he was, a, he was a, a lovely man I I it, it actually you know resurrecting these old anecdotes and thinking about Ralph now it's I have to say probably my favorite thing about making that movie was my relationship with him
0: yeah
2: I I um, had to go back to England after we had uh, locked the picture, we did all the editing and had to go back. Well, we were in England for over a year. My uh, daughter was then of school age. She learned to read over there. And so I eagerly went back to uh, do the um, dialogue replacement with him and um, we were instantly back to our uh, relationship when he, we, we were in a very expensive, um, post-production facility uh, um, and they took a lunch break and we're paying a lot of money per hour. <laughs> Meters running. <laughs> and and we went broke for lunch. And the two of us went out to a, um, a restaurant that he chose and there was a car waiting to take us, big fancy Rolls Royce that somehow, I don't know who orders these things, but I guess it was a the production department done that. And we had this lunch and he insisted before we went back to resume this looping session uh-huh. that um, I had to see a uh, clock that was for sale in the neighborhood near Mayfair, some very fancy part of town. And he's a clock collector, he was. And uh, so the car took us, and we, we were 10 minutes away from starting. You know, we had to get back. Yeah. And so the next 10 minutes, I was being shown this clock they instantly knew who he was when he came into it because he had been a client of this an- antique clock place for years and sure it was a grandfather clock about nine feet tall and it was this uh, historic importance and he um had them take it apart and show me all the pieces and all i could do was keep looking at my watch because right. i was so afraid but you don't
1: about, want to be rude but you want to uh, get you out of there back,
2: you know ralph yeah. you know? <laughs> he said no no yeah uh, he, and he said my young American friend here would like to take this with him back to America. How much, how much are you asking for it? They said, well, assuming we can get the export license, it will be (laughs) 75,000 (laughs) pounds. And I, I said, Ralph, let's just get out of here. So we, we got, we got out. And we're, the, the guy with the Rolls Royce rolled up and he jumped out and he opened the door. But Ralph took me by the arm and he pushed me down past the car and into another clock shop. Oh, no. And by now, now we're, you know, the, 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 the people are You're waiting in. for us. Yeah.
0: yeah.
2: And he did the same thing again with a wall clock. Uh, and I uh, remember this so vividly because I was going crazy and he was having such fun tormenting me. And he said, no, 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 you must see this. You know, and, and, and he, again, my young American friend, cetera, and, and, <laughs> I, and they said, well, how much, how much would it cost him to t- bring this back to California with him? <laughs> and he said, 7,500 pounds. I was practically ready to pay it to get out <laughs> of <it. laughs> just
1: gave it going. <laughs> and,
2: and do you know, we, st- we came out and I was on the way and he took me once more and he put me into a third shop he, he uh-huh. a third third time it was a mantle clock
1: you need an alarm clock <laughs>
2: yeah and um he was a rascal you getting the getting the fixture sure and uh because he hated looping he, he just hated it he said uh-huh. i'd rather he said i would rather lick clean the boot of your car <laughs> to oh <go> back.
1: <laughs> that's vivid that's vivid yeah, i like that and do you think is i mean as a stage guy i mean you, you know so renowned for his stage work. Do you think that, that that just sounded like drudgery to him
2: at that point, just the, the looping and stuff like that? You know, um, he, he had done what turned out to be his last um, role on stage just prior to Dragon Slayer. Mm-hmm. And the reason it was his last role is that he was having difficulty with his lines and um, they it was necessary for him to have uh, a prompter, so, there was a there was a um, somebody feeding him lines during that production. I saw the play, and I wasn't worried about it at all because it was right. another discipline. And he has such charisma, and he he was so beloved in his own yeah. rascal way,
0: yeah,
2: uh, that the audience um, forgave it. Yeah. But
1: um, Ian McKellen has a similar kind of aura now. I think you know that sort of. Re- uh, elder statesman revered, but also like better watch watch out, you know, because like, he's, st- he's still a firecracker.
2: Yeah. Yeah. You know? No, Ralph Ralph was. Um, he he was a, had been a motorcyclist. Hmm. He told me about his school days. I have a lot of Ralph stories. He, he was he was just. Um, uh, it slowly became the thing that I looked forward to most going to the set it was the time that I could spend with him because uh, he was so unpredictable. And he had such a um, a wily um, sense of humor and um, great, great anecdotes about uh, his uh, younger days. Yeah. So that's that's um, the, sort of the happiest thing about the movie. The, the movie was was uh, difficult also for the um, other actors because we were on location in some difficult um, weather. Yeah, and. Um, it was a big company, it was a big production.
1: Um, it was tough when you guys, when you reach theaters too, I mean, because just the the movies that came out that summer, like it was like, it was pretty rough. I mean, you know, Raiders of the Lost Ark,
2: you know. Well, that's, that's interesting <laughs> because um, uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark was also paramount and it was also only two yeah. or three weeks after the release of Dragon Slayer. And that's what the distribution people had their eyes on.
0: Yeah, yeah.
2: Again, I was too uh, naive to understand there was a tidal wave coming that was uh, George's and Stephen's picture. And uh, they were really, we, we were this sort of slightly bastardized um, movie that had been shared with Disney. With
1: Disney, yeah, co production. Uh, and it, it, Disney felt kind of un, uh, unsettled about it in some ways, maybe because of like, the themes and the, it's, it's darker than, you know, Disney's, you know, yes. no br- there was brief nudity for goodness sakes. I mean, yes you want to see that in
2: a Disney film? Yes, yes, and um, they were very insistent that uh, we must not have an all English crew. Americans wouldn't stand for uh, an all, uh, sorry, not crew, all, all yeah. English cast. You know, you must have Americans in the cast, otherwise it'll be- uh, Harry Potter. too <laughs> <CD> for American <laughs> audiences. This is long before the Harry Potter yeah. Phenomena. It's really the ironies are so uh that's evident funny. in a hindsight, nothing like it. But they wouldn't make the movie otherwise.
1: Wow. It was it really, what, that's amazing. I'm sorry, go
2: ahead. Here what what what's happening then is that um uh, George had uh, created ILM and um, Hal Barwood and I, who were uh, the writing, uh directing, producing partnership on Dragon Slayer, we we were very uh, much around when George was establishing ILM. We were all friends from film school. Sure. And and uh, so uh, we this it, it was back it was going to be in Van Nuys and uh, uh, John Dykstra was head of ILM. It was a uh, and we were meeting all these interesting um, technical people, but it was all geared to outer space. Right. And. Um
1: and yours would be the first uh non-Lucasfilm production, right? For yes. ILM. Yeah.
2: Yes. And uh, and Hal Barwood was fixated on Tolkien. He got me to read them, and he really was one of the mainsprings for the world that the film inhabits was Hal's fixation on Tolkien. He 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 knew his Tolkien backwards and forwards, and I had known of it, but it yeah. seemed, you know, like a cultish, you know, uh, byway, And I read all the books and appreciated very much um, their elegance and the characters, the memorable, all that stuff. I, I, he was right. <laughs> so yeah. we thought, well, why not write something which captures that spirit, something original that otherwise you couldn't do, but now with this new company George's guys that we can, we can yeah. make this happen. And so, um, we did. And um, in the history of ILM, um, the reason it's in some of those books is that um, they had just, on Kirschner's movie, uh, The Empire Strikes Back, mm-hmm. introduced very tentatively the idea of go motion. What is go motion? It's a, it's a, a way to use uh, stop motion, but to get some fluidity to it. The, the, the traditional problem with stop motion um, is that um, you move uh, the armature of the puppet or whatever it is that's being animated, and then you take a picture of it. Right. You do that again and again and again during the day. Famously, you know, <laughs> labyrinth, et yeah. etc. But every frame is sharp.
1: So you don't have the blur of motion
2: you of? have and, and it and and there is a it's uh, in 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 large scale movements movements say of the extremities if you wave your arm your fingers motion picture cameras were traditionally around a you know a 50th of a second which is not that fast a shutter speed so you have some blur if the if you're moving your hand like this you your yeah. fingers will be blurred maybe not the elbow but and mm-hmm. so so um, the ILM guys had come up with this. Yes, guys, there are no women involved. And they had come up with an idea of what if we left the shutter open while we moved the puppet. And then, and, then and you that. that and, yeah. and, and that's the sort of the, the shorthand version of what they were doing. And um, film got a Technical Academy Award nomination because the dragon's movements were unlike the stop motion. Um, And these are people, by the way, at Ireland who worship Ray Harry hasn't. Don't get the wrong idea. Wasn't, but they they were carrying that tradition to the next level.
0: Yeah.
2: And uh, so, Dragon Slayer, in the annals of um, (laughs) that world, um, has that that notch on its belt. It was the the first serious exploitation of a new technology.
1: Yeah, and it it was nominated for an Oscar, as you say. uh, and that year there was only two nominees in the category for uh, for visual effects. And the other was Raiders of Lost Ark, which oh, won also ILM. Um, so that was kind of stacked against you too. Like, a, you know, cause if it, you know, if it's a, two, you know, a two horse race, and they're both ILM, they'll probably go with the one that's,
0: mm-hmm.
1: you know, it's a bunch of, lunchbox, course. you know, of uh, yeah. but and then also the film was nominated for an Oscar for its music as well. Um, it, it's amazing that, 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 year for fantasy films i I was looking back at it there was uh there was excalibur and heavy metal uh the animated film uh there was clash of the titans uh time bandits i mean that's that's a lot there that's uh you don't really see uh you know uh, kind of a a flurry of fantasy films like that in one year anymore
0: you know Mm -hmm. it's really
1: interesting uh do you think that that was you guys were part of a swell of interest in this kind of area, or is it maybe just driven by visual effects? The fact that everybody was pushing the envelope, and these are the natural kind of stories you might try to do if you could broaden your spectacle uh, abilities.
2: Um, my answer to that is that um, I think, from um, my own sensibility, I, I've always been intrigued. I look back on it, it's clearer now. I've always been intrigued by the idea of a fantastical element in a real world
1: right yeah because yours is and, technically not a fantasy film really because it's not it doesn't have the, the sort of the good versus evil uh it seems like a mature version of a, a fairy tale to me like it feels like a, a real world fa- fairy tale
2: that's that was exactly the idea that was exactly the idea and and um, the arrival of christianity in the real world in other words how would it have been had this one element, this one fantastical element? And I, uh, a few years later, made uh, Batteries Not Included, which is in the yeah. Lower East Side and a tenement building, and everything is kind of gritty and, you know, people struggling and low income. And, and then there's this fantastical element of these little spaceships that are arriving and you know take up residence in the building and change everybody's lives. And, and um, I, I just... Uh, was intrigued by that. And, and but the second part of my answer to your question is that there's no question that um, there was a big change coming technically. Yeah. Not as big as the digital change, but right. there were a lot, there was a new, there was a not only a new generation of filmmakers, storytellers, yeah. you know, that I keep hearing about you guys from the 70s that the USC mafia, yak, 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 yeah. yak right? But there was a new generation of technical brilliance really. Uh, And I was very uh, lucky to get to know them and learn to operate that machine, so to speak. I I, um, spent a lot of my time and and ILM was located uh, in here in Northern California. And uh, so it was uh, my home away from home uh, on Dragon Slayer, batteries not included. I did commercials with their commercials outfit and was um, um, I remember when when uh, Steven was preparing the Jurassic Park and Phil Tippett had uh, you know been a very close colleague on Dragon Slayer and uh, um, our friendship had endured and batteries not included and 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 then one day he and John Mall, who was one of the um, uh, IOM uh, effects supervisors. Uh, came to running to find me and they dragged me into a, a room and, and to show me this Tyrannosaurus Rex that was striding along on a, on a. And it was the very first demonstration, the one they had used to sell Stephen on the fact that they could do this digitally. Wow. And they wanted me to see it because they knew what we had gone through to bring our dragon to life. And uh, it was the, you know, that was... That was the the real revolution.
1: Yeah, yeah. It's the next. It's like watching the uh, uh, the prehistoric uh, era change right in front of you. Like you, you know, you've just moved up a a couple of evolutionary notches uh, with those dinosaurs. Um, You know, it's it's the the dinosaur that you guys realized on the screen uh, holds up so well, Uh, and it's it, it you know it could undermine it could absolutely destroy the movie if if it didn't. Uh, uh, and it echoes in people's work you know a lot of people really really deeply influenced by that you know like Guillermo del Toro he often talks about it as like you know uh, his favorite on-screen dragon that uh, you know along with the Sleeping Beauty animated one um, you know George R.R. Martin uh, you know he, he's often talked about the tone of Dragon Slayer and and uh, the world it, it presents and you look at Game of Thrones and you can you can see a line that Connects the two, you know, pretty pretty easily. Especially for fans that go back and check it out now, it's because uh, the world you present it's it is the Dark Ages in every way, but it, it feels like it's uh, it's the stakes are higher, or maybe the uh, the uh, the rationale is is more uh, relatable for the modern audience, you know, because it doesn't have that component that Star Wars has, which is at its basic root good. Good will triumph over evil you know um your your world seems uh a fire breathing departure from that
2: yeah it was it was um we were really uh i i didn't understand until we finished the film how far we had violated the whole disney you know <laughs> worldview yeah and um I guess a lot of assumptions that we made were made out of inexperience and naive tape because we were still pretty young, pretty new to the business. Yeah. And um, the um, audience uh, that saw the film, I think, was excited by it, but it, not, not enough people saw it. So it was, it was, it had its fans, but it was uh, kind of forgotten um, yeah. thereafter. Then years later, uh, dragons kind of were being resurrected in the popular imagination. And I began to see not only uh, echoes of our dragon, Vermithrax. Yes. <laughs> Vermithrax pejorative. Pejorative, uh,
1: that's my favorite part. I love that. <laughs> <It's> so great.
2: <laughs> um, we, we, we not only saw um, some of that design carried through, but uh, the typography that the same, same designer who designed the dragon designed the typeface for that, and wow. that typeface has become kind of a cliche yeah. in, in, on paperbacks and all the rest of it. The dragon was designed by a, um, an artist here in Northern California, um, the late David Bennett, hmm. who um, we originally hired to uh, uh, illustrate. Um, the screenplay we wrote it independently and then we had to sell it and uh, we thought it would be useful for the studios who were going to look it over to have some color paintings and so we had uh, him whose work I knew of because he was a neighbor really and um in the process of doing those paintings he began to work toward the dragon that you saw on the screen and um both Hal Borwood and I strongly believe that there should be um, wings and back legs, but no little, you know, Tyrannosaurus Rex front paws, which sort of got in the way. And I've never been able to accept a four-legged dragon, no matter what the movie. Yeah. <laughs> and and um, the profile of our dragon, which has uh, got a lot of comment and still does actually, uh, it it. If you can imagine a very good-looking version of that, that was David Bennett. <laughs> he, <laughs> he captured his own in you know, a kind of a ferocious mood. He had he had sort of a he, he had a blue-eyed intensity about him, and and, and in profile, uh, there was uh, a, and I wasn't the only one to remark on it. And so um, I used to joke with him about it, and uh, that he he captured <laughs> something of his own personality in those. In that design, and the design has has I think you're right. It has I, I've seen many echoes uh, in Peter Jackson's movies. And Absolutely, and,
1: uh, yeah. There's a lot. It, it goes on and on. Even like uh, BBC shows like Merlin, and, and uh, you know, yeah. It's uh, it's definitely uh, reverberating uh, to this day. I think it's getting more fans all the time. So when the movie came out, um, that Paramount Disney kind of collab. Uh, there was only one other film uh, released uh, under that sort of partnership, I think at that time it was Popeye it was the. Uh, oh, really? Altman. Yeah, the Robert Altman Popeye. Um, so uh, I guess it looked like they were going for, you know, uh, traditionally young audience type material, but like with a, a different take. I mean, cause yours was darker and more mature. And then, I mean, so clearly Altman's Popeye, uh, you know, doesn't seem like it's really made for little kids to me. Mm-hmm. Uh when you watch it. It's it scared the Jesus out of me when I was a little kid.
2: The the circumstances um, of the studios on Dragon Slayer were um unusual.
0: Yeah.
2: Uh and unpredicted. We, we didn't anticipate the way that happened. It was um we um Hap- the, the studio, uh, bo- both studios, had been trying to develop films about dragons, and the reason was that the um, the fad of Dungeons and Dragons had taken roots, yeah,
0: huge. all
2: over the country. And um, these guys who were running the studios didn't really know what that was, but they had heard about it, and they were supposed to have their ear to the ground for things like that, and. Um, we, uh, you know, bounced in with our screenplay unaware that both studios had been paying other writers to generate material about this and they were not satisfied with anything. And here come, you know, Barwood and Robbins with this finished screenplay all ready to go, plus this ILM contingent, which is, you know, right there, ready ready to go. And they seem to have a... um, and so um, we had these happy meetings. We didn't know what was going to happen. And then our agent phoned us and said, guess what? <laughs> this is going to be two studios. They have decided to, rather than to compete, they both like your whole thing. And so they're going to co-finance and uh, Paramount will do uh US and Canada distribution and uh, Disney will do the rest of the world. And um, so that's why it was these odd circumstances and why it was so strange. Uh, there was a very different mentality um, when we had to deal with, uh, um, Ron Miller was the uh, head of Disney. He, he was, uh, what was the son-in-law of Walt and, and um, very nice man, but whose sensibility could not have been further away from what the film turned out to be.
0: Yeah.
2: And uh, then we had, Paramount, which was going through big changes, Michael Eisner and Jeff Katzenberg were running it, and um, Simpson and Bruckheimer had a home there. Then there was a different, you know, um, different cast of characters um, at, at Paramount. And so we were kind of being whipsawed back and forth. Um, the reaction to the dailies, the reaction, there, it, it was, but. Um, it really the consequences of all that did not really come in. Apart from the casting thing that I mentioned to you at the beginning, where the Disney insisted on a certain number of Americans, who, that worried me about the mix of the accents.
1: Oh, you know, and you had Peter McNichol from Texas.
2: Yes, and and uh, Caitlin Clark and uh, Albert Salmi. We had we we were, yeah. and it was very very strictly adhered to. Yeah. They, they um, and uh, so we were hoping for the famous mid-Atlantic <laughs> sound. <laughs> that was that was a worry. But it was nothing compared to what happened uh, when the film was finished. And suddenly we were in the hands of a whole other entity at, at Paramount. We didn't know anybody in distribution. We didn't know anything about distribution. Wow. And um, this uh, the man who was in charge of distribution, uh, he began uh, our very first meeting by telling us how he didn't like the title.
0: Oof.
2: of amazing. Yeah. It's kind of uh, and kind of went downhill from there. He didn't he came, he he didn't come to the previous previous screenings were fantastic. We got all these great reactions. George came with me to one and uh, we sat next to each other. He hadn't seen the film. That's when he saw the final film at this uh I think we went to San Jose or somewhere like that. And we you know a traditional
0: yeah
2: you know where they people fill out cards and all the rest of it and the audience loved the movie and George said, well it's a hit." you know and uh, everybody around the little nucleus, of, we were all feeling very wonderful that we had kind of yeah. you know, avoided all these pitfalls and pulled it off technically, and it was a good story. And uh, and then this man, this fellow, he just, he had, he just, he, he was, it was barely on his radar. It was all raiders all the time. Yeah. And, wow. um, but in in the years that have gone by, it has um, somehow uh, collected this, you know, cadre of fans and this cult status, whatever you call it, the consolation of many a many a box office disappointment. To become. And,
1: I, and I think it affected uh, movies for uh, in, in short order too, because in, in a way, like I felt movies like Dick Donner's uh, Lady Hawk, uh, you know, or Ron Howard's Legend. Uh, I mean, I thought that those movies really we informed uh, by what you had done and the tones and the levels, because uh, we hadn't really seen that before your film, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, it became kind of part of that uh, the lexicon of the the, uh, the sword and uh, brimstone films, you know.
2: Yeah, um, no, it's it's um, you know it makes sense chronologically, but it's always something of a shock when I hear about how. I was young and scared by your movie. When, when, <laughs> I, when I hear, um, you know, because you, you meet people who, who who do know the movie, and uh, and the other odd thing is that thanks to the internet, all kinds of um, lore has grown up around it and other movies that I worked on and, and movies that all of us of my generation worked on. Yeah. And so, um, but it's 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 uh, it's true. I. I did not appreciate at the time that, and it was not the intention to break the mold. It was just the instinct right. of, of, of uh, what was needed to, to inform uh, what we saw. Uh, we, we were not um, we were huge fans of genre filmmaking or something like that, and, and we weren't you know, frustrated by it. It was just right. an enthusiasm for, we had this idea that it was a, a great story that could be told about the end of Dragondom. It's right. the end. Yeah, and, yeah. and, and you are making
1: a movie that you were interested in. So I mean, that's what it yeah. had to be, to be it was for you really to be That,
2: interested. that simple. Yeah. And, and um, I guess the um, Hollywood that we were um, moving into, um, it just represented something that was uh, um, on another planet really. It yeah. was, it was, um, Francis had come, um, Francis Coppola had, had, uh, established American Zootrope, sure. And, uh, a lot of us had followed him up to Northern California. He was the Pied Piper with American Zootrope, And, and so there was, it wasn't as if there was a cell meeting every Thursday night in which we were laying, you know, pl- plotting against the establishment. It was just in pursuit of a different kind of uh, filmmaking, yeah, an alternate kind of filmmaking, mm-hmm. and uh, Francis felt one of the reasons I, I'm sure that uh, if you were to read up about the founding of Zoetrope, um, that uh, it had to you he, he had to leave Hollywood because uh, there was just a whole different Weltanschauung uh, operating, yeah. and without without having planned it or without having you know signed up specifically for it, we were part of it.
1: Yeah. it's, it's fascinating to think about, um, you know, I think I said, uh, Ron Howard legend, I think I actually meant Willow legend was uh, Ridley Scott. I got yes. my uh, fantasy films scramble for a second. Um, you know, as you're talking about that, I, I can't help but think about those, you know, those the three individuals, you know, uh, people often put Spielberg, Lucas and, and Coppola together. I mean, Francis older, you know, uh, than the other two, like he, he had success first and, Mm -hmm. they kind of looked up to him but they uh they they are also different uh in the way that they um sort of uh meet the world and and the way that they make films and it's fascinating to me like you know george seems like he you know he really has the engineer in him he really loves ideas um you know he performance directing isn't maybe his greatest specialty you know but uh You know, and Spielberg also has that kind of uh, affinity for technology and and, uh, the zeal to uh, push the envelope. But he seems to be much more connected to um, maybe understanding the human heart of storytelling uh, and the way it's presented. Uh, Just from your near distance, what what would you say about those guys and and, uh, kind of uh, comparing them in that way, if it's not too indelicate?
2: Um, I, I take your point. The, the um, I, I, I don't quite see Stephen in the terms that you describe it, but, uh, he, he's not, um, he, St- Stephen just has a lot of expectations from the technical end, and he's, mm-hmm. he's very demanding with regard to who he works with, uh, that they deliver for him when he, but he's not going, to, he, he's, I don't, I don't know that he would be equipped to suggest a technical path forward, but when he has something that he wants to be, that he will find the people who can make it uh, possible.
1: Which is different um, than, than Lucas and also different than like say Zemeckis who is, you know, seems to really live for that, that stuff.
2: Yes, yes. Well, there's this, I mean, George, George is very eloquent on um, the fact that, uh, there is such a thing as illusion in movies. Yeah, the illusion of movement. And so when you you have, I mean, we're getting into a whole sort of <laughs> philosophical debate about CGI here, which is
0: sure.
2: But um, George, um, he's just. Uh, very, I would say George's greatest strength as a filmmaker always was the, um, ability in the editing room to put things together in unexpected ways and to seize your attention and make things exciting somehow. You can generate excitement out of material that other people would not necessarily even think of, you know, using. Yeah. And, um, I think he will happily tell you that uh, the idea of working with actors was never the origins of his theatrical instinct. It was more like creating an uh, apparatus, a fascination, With uh, uh, and he, he always was fond of the fact that um, a filmmaker was not that different from a toy maker. Hmm. Uh, he was on a panel once. He's talked about this more than once that George Cukor was uh, uh, on this panel and George Cukor didn't like the term filmmaker because it sounded too much like toy maker. And George said, no, no, that's the great part of it. <laughs> Not I think really that 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 um, uh, captures a lot of, one of the things that George, he, George's favorite thing where he could spend days with him you know, forgetting to, <laughs> To to eat or sleep in the editing room. If you gave him a sufficient quantity of materials, because he had such a gift, has such a gift, yeah. And and I think he was uh, perfectly content to give up the reins uh, to Kirshner and uh, Richard Marquand in the early Star Wars pictures, so that they would supply him with the footage. Yeah. Yeah. Go out there with your go out there with your vacuum cleaner and suck it up, and then shoot it over to me, and then I'll make something happen here.
1: Yeah. Or it's like, kind of like Ralph Richardson with his clocks. I, you know, like Lucas, when he goes into a movie theater and hears how bad the sound is, he immediately drops his filmmaking career and spends the next few years of his life working on the sounds because if it doesn't sound good, why bother making the movies? But you can't imagine other directors doing that. Like they, it just, it it wouldn't be part of their, they, they wouldn't connect those dots,
2: you know? You know, there's, there, that was part of that um, technological change that was coming. And I would say again, that um, um, Stephen uh, has always had a, a very different relationship with his actors than George has. George who can be very close friends with his his company of actors. I'm not telling you anything you don't know because of the Star Wars mythos is, the, is extensive enough. But they used to tease George about his, his terse sort of um, cryptic, gnomic, <laughs> <laughs> style of, <laughs> of giving actors direction usually was do it again faster
1: <laughs> <laughs> like that, but faster.
2: <laughs> but um, um, uh, the uh, and and the great thing about Stephen Stephen um, just as nonstop um, excitement of, of the of the idea of making movies with the right stories. it's interesting to look back on uh george's student films why there was some reason i had to oh yes because of this thx anniversary uh one of the um podcasters uh sent me to some site where i I got to be exposed for the first time in decades to george's um student student films and it's they demonstrated exactly what i'm describing which is the really no acting There's running yeah (laughs) there's looking over (laughs) shoulders and yeah. there's you know, and 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 then there's that visceral um, tempo, that that yeah. command of picture and sound, yeah. and the and and the sheer um, volatility that he captured in the editing room.
1: Yeah, there's such a velocity to his his
2: you know like it's always stirring. And you when know. when he made uh, the feature version of THX, uh, the actors were at arm's length because of the nature of that world. It was a dystopia. Yeah. And it was very hard um, for the, the, the film was populated with people who had been depersonalized. Right. And so there was a, 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 a fit between his sensibility and what he was showing on screen. It was it, it made sense. It was a um, the, the whole white limbo, et cetera, et cetera. Well, and then, of course, that film almost literally disappeared. Right. <laughs> drag yeah. like, look like right him. And, and and so um he he then made American graffiti, which uh uh came from his own roots in Modesto. Modesto and yeah. had a, a wonderful, wonderful um today we say character, what is it? What's the term? Character-based, <laughs> character-based screenplay. by uh, Should well, they right? all be
1: character-based, right? <laughs> yeah,
2: and 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 uh, George, with a uh, a great eye uh, for casting, and Fred Roos was uh, did the casting on it, found just a wonderful ensemble. And yeah. you turn that George's abilities uh, to capture, you know, uh, small town life and as, as he knew it. Plus all the filmmaking virtues, and, and the result was was uh, phenomenal. Yeah. So um, Stephen, I think uh, um, tell you, however, that it was the uh, student version of the movie THX that electrified him about what could be done by a new generation of filmmakers. Again, to do with with the Hollywood um, that was that was surrounding us. Yeah. We 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 were in, uh, in in film school in the era of uh, the um, the big uh, glossy uh, Hollywood movies, that, you know, uh, Rock Hudson, Doris oh, Day, and uh, uh, Towering Inferno for oh, yeah. you know the, the and there was there was there it was it was ripe really. Oh. Yeah. For a change, it was it it was I think in a way creatively exhausted uh, and and needed a, a, a big kick from the a yeah. new set of, of filmmakers.
1: Yeah, it it, uh, it it definitely led to fascinating things, and and uh, it's amazing to think of uh, you know how many uh, really medium changing works came out in a relatively short period of time uh, around then. It's really really exciting. Um, you know, for you, uh, one of the things I wanted to ask you about was we talked a little bit about the mechanical the dragon. The, it was the, on the set, the biggest dragon was there was one giant dragon, and then there was a, a number of puppets, if I think, if I remember right. Um, and how long would the dragon would have been like 50, 40 feet, probably long, something like that? Um,
2: the, the, we never had uh, the dragon in one piece as full scale in its entirety
1: right
2: we had a full-scale head and neck Oh, there's a scene in the film where peter mcnichol or a stunt double literally jumps onto the neck of the dragon that was done live
1: wow that's great
2: uh, and we had a full-scale tail with a cable in it and we had a full-scale claw which looked like a big chicken foot
0: <laughs> nice yeah, yeah yeah and
2: and and um, I had uh, storyboarded everything. I was so ambitious and so naive. I had all these wonderfully choreographed ideas about how I was going to do this, that, and the other thing with. Uh, and, because uh, I had learned from Steven with Jaws that it would be really a good idea not to show this dragon too soon. <laughs> right, right,
1: right. So and so uh, we had these big
2: pieces. I was, I had, and and we came to the, we were shooting at Pinewood. We were on the 007 stage, which is, uh, and I think it's at the time, maybe still is the largest sound stage in Europe. <laughs> we had a horizon of mountains on it and a sky and rocks. And <laughs> I mean, it was, uh, there's a, a, a landslide uh, that we shot largely on that stage. It's all inside. <laughs> it's it's oh, so wow. big. You think you're outside. And, and um, I came time to do it. And they had these people, the uh, the Disney, uh, uh, the Disney um, model shop had built these full scale pieces and they had shipped it over. And it was like, you know, army equipment. There's gigantic crates and, and cables are like inch thick. Cables and other. and, and, and flamethrowers,
1: right? Speaking of military equipment, you have flamethrowers, right? Also, so
2: <laughs> yeah, that's
1: pretty exciting.
2: <laughs> yeah, we and and I had you know the, you know, I Matthew has delivered his storyboards, and I you know again I was so inexperienced. I just assumed, well, they see the storyboards, they know you know what's going to have to happen here, and it meant nothing, nothing. You know, they well, all right, Mister Roberts, what would you like to do? I said well, you know, board number 47B, let's start with that. It's easy. The tail has to simply curl and, and this girl is going to run and the tail is going to guide her closer to the dragon. Oh, well, you know, and they worked for hours and then ne- <laughs>
0: <laughs> I,
2: I, it was a nightmare for me. I, I will never forget that day because uh, this was reality confronting you. What, what are you going to do? You're, everyone's wow. looking at you and nothing, nothing. And so we it was as if I was doing a tabletop animation, a little camera and little models, except it was real and I was in flops. Right? I was just, you know, seized up with panic and we just made up stuff. <laughs> right? wow. you know, can you raise it and drop it? Well, yes, whatever we you can do. Okay, let's okay. do that. <laughs> can you, you know, and we just improvised for hours yeah. and and I had no idea if it would cut together or what order it would go. It was absolutely, I was winging it with, these full-scale pieces that you mentioned, uh, yeah. uh, it was... <laughs> anyway, it, 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 it did cut together. Um, Tony Lawson was the editor, wonderful English film editor. And um, I learned uh, to be very, very careful thereafter. I, I redrew everything. Uh, I had to replan on the fly, uh, you know, not on the day like that. But I had to revisit all the sequences that would use these full-scale pieces and be very much uh, uh, start, with the, start,
1: start with the start with the equipment and then move yeah. toward the yeah. you know the scenario as opposed to the other way around.
2: There was, those are the full scale pieces. Then we had uh, what you could call as sort of a mid-size, some pieces uh, uh, effects group uh, for the head and neck had something about three or four feet long. And then there was the actual um, maquette that Phil Tippett um, had supervised the construction of this um, uh, skeleton. And then the fabrication of uh, all the, Materials around it and the execution of the dragon skin and the the, the painting. This is really an art. It's like a uh, it's 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 you know kind of beyond belief. The beautiful handcrafted work down to them. The, the 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 eyeball was done with a, a glistening ball bearing which had reflectivity like a real eye. It was very very impressive. Lovely. They gave it to me at the end of the production.
1: Oh, nice. You know, it sounds as you're describing it. i like it. It sounds like a NASA mission and it sounds like the Sistine Chapel and then it sounds like a, you know, an invasion of Dunkirk. I mean, it seems like it's, it's a little bit of uh, all three of those worlds, you know, uh, art, science, and, and uh, just the logistics of making it
2: real. We had, we had um, as is true, I think, of uh, a lot of the films of that era, we had a cut of the movie in which there were individual set pieces that were built up largely of scene missing for months at uh. a time. Because those were shots that were in production months and months after the live shoot in England. Right. And we would sometimes illustrate them by just inserting a shot of the storyboard. Right. Uh, But eventually, uh, these shots would come in uh, weeks and weeks apart, and you would see these set pieces come to life. And uh, it was a a particular um, treat. (laughs) Yeah. to to finally um, be able to um, see something that you would imagine for all these months, finally, uh, uh, you you, you could see whether or not you liked it and then change it. You you can plan all you like, but when you see it on the big screen, you have to adjust too. There were a lot of lessons learned there. I should also mention that the uh, collaboration with Alex North, who was the composer, was quite an important element. Yeah. And um, he came to England and he was on the set for some of the shooting. And uh, we both had a fondness for Prokofiev. He was so happy when he found out that I was a fan of the, um, 20th century Russian music, because he was too. Uh-huh. And so he um, was able to incorporate a lot of these modernist ideas in a medieval uh, 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 movie with uh, a, a big orchestra we recorded, really Abbey Road. Yeah. yeah, it
1: really works well. It's like yeah. uh, it, it he, gives he it was a nominated. Thing.
2: He got a, a nomination uh, for that score. Yeah. What I remember about but I remember about that is um, that uh, we we didn't go to the academy. I've never been to the Academy Awards actually, but um, uh-huh. so we watched it on TV. And when uh, it came time for them to announce the five nominees for best score, right the curtain open and there was Liberace what <laughs> yes at the piano with his candelabra Did and he, play he played it? you know maybe 30 or 40 seconds of the main theme oh, for each film
1: he must have loved yours
2: and he got to the dragon slayer and it was these big sort of Tchaikovsky yeah. crashing chords yeah. right <laughs> was, oh that's great it was the that was the one of the funniest things I played Ever seen? I'll never forget, you know, liberaci <laughs> Liberace pounding Alex North out at his grand piano. That was uh, a. <laughs>
1: Chariots of Fire was that year, right? Chariots of Fire won.
2: Yes. I so he
1: had to play that it. too. That was a good year for Liberace. Whoever did that was smart. <laughs> whoever, whoever brought in Liberace. Yeah. Yeah. Kudos for that. Uh, <laughs> that's fun. That's fun. Uh, well, it's uh, 40 years, 40th anniversary coming up. And uh, you know, this movie has still got a lot of fire in its belly, and it's got a lot of influence. Um, it's just such a treat to talk to you. Uh, it's I I, uh, I could talk to you for days. <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, no, it's been it's been fun. If you uh, want to talk about another movie ten years from now, <laughs> I mean, uh, it's just. Um, what can you say it's uh, these decades uh, fly by when you're having fun and uh, it's a freelance, a freelance world. So you're very distracted, you know, not knowing where you're gonna go. Oh, yeah. And um, when I got the um, email that she sent in honor of his anniversary, it really brought me up short because I, 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 I had, I, as I said, the th- THX thing was surprising enough, but then it was applying <laughs> to Dragon Slayer. <laughs> all these years later so um I think we I, all
1: lost a year too in a way you know like I mean it feels like you know it's we don't have things to keep track of the last year the, the mm-hmm. usual landmarks in our memory so it, like I keep forgetting what year it is I keep thinking it's 2020 you know that yeah. uh, it's just the nature of this uh, this fog that we're in
2: so I will look forward to um you know I I, I have a link to your um show and I I um I have yet to go in, and, and explore, but uh, I, I, in honor of um, Dragon Slayer and this anniversary, and thank you for remembering. I think that's uh, lovely of you to take note of it. Uh, and yeah. um, I really hadn't um, recited any of these uh, anecdotes for so many years, and here they came flooding back, particularly my, um, my Ralph Richardson adventures, which were uh, uh, among the most vivid.
1: Yeah, you know that there there might be a, a a lovely you know essay there that you could do on on that uh, that friendship and that uh, yeah, that, you know, that the, time that's together. That's true. An article. Just that's the, right.
0: That's it right. It would be
1: really lovely because especially the clock thing, it really lends itself to uh, you know some just natural symbolism and, and uh, you know the, you know well, he's winding the, you up. <laughs> the, end,
2: the, end, the end of that clock story
0: uh-huh.
2: is um, this mantle clock that he wanted me to buy was only 750 pounds. And I that I was almost ready to write the check, but I, I got him out of there and the, and, and there was a, he actually still refused to get in the car. And, <laughs> and he, we went into, um, this is a whole street of, of these um, shops. Uh, uh, God, I, my wife would remember what street this was. Very, very expensive. Um, <laughs> you know, shops of that kind. And he went in, he went in, this is the, the way I remember the end of that story, is that he went into this last shop, he said, oh, wait, wait, just one more, just one more. You, you. And he, he went in, he knew exactly what he was looking for, and they, oh, uh, hello, Sir Ralph, hello, nice, good to see you. And he went and he took off a shelf a ship's cr- uh, chronometer, Uh-oh. which is a, a, a wooden box, yeah. And he opened it up, and inside is a clock on gimbals.
0: For... It's,
2: it, it has to do with uh, the early days of uh, finding um, latitude.
1: Oh, no kidding. Oh, yeah. that's interesting. And,
2: and he, he knew all, all about this stuff. And he went in and he released the latches. He knew exactly what he was doing. He obviously had a few of these at home. Maybe. And he lifted the clock. It was, he li- it was, clock was ticking. And he lifted he lifted the mechanism out of this mahogany box with all its brass fittings, and he lifted. He was standing by the window, and the window was had some stained glass in it, and was speckled with dust. And he lifted this clockwork up into a beam of sunlight, right? And the clock, and he said, and he looked at me with that crazy glint in his eye, and he said, "Look, the beating heart. You must have it." Wow it's fantastic
1: yeah well you, yeah, you got to write all that down come on it's too good
0: it's too good yeah
2: oh God I I, I, I really um, there was nobody like him I actually when I made batteries not included I had a a, a, a wonderful friendship with Hume Cronin and Jessica oh, that cool. was that was the only other um, relationship uh, of that kind that I had Um with um people who really came from the theater yeah and had a very um particular way of of approaching character sure. analyzing character uh ralph was all about gestures and vocabulary pronunciation rhythm his ralph's script was marked uh in terms of the rhythm he wanted to establish wow. if there was a speech wow. and um Hume, Hume uh, was uh similar in his detail and Jessica Tandy would never even think about that she was pure instinct and would kept kept telling Hume to stop worrying in other words I had I had um, I, I was the younger player in those days with these seniors <laughs> and um, for whatever reason that on um, those productions uh, those um, warm um, professional slash... Uh, well, personal yeah relationships are the most enduring yeah. when i think back on it
1: that's amazing yeah this, just just have them as a resource uh uh you know as one to treasure and uh, yeah i mean richardson was he, he, i mean he was like part of the, the triumvirate with uh with and, and olivier i mean yes and, uh, you know for decades yes uh it, you know i'm not sure that his uh, his stature now—I'm not sure
2: that it's—it's it's, uh, realized and recognized and appreciated the way it really should be. No, it's not. It's not. And had had Dragon Slayer become a substantial hit, that I'm—I—it's I'm, one of my regrets is that uh, for uh, young people today, Americans in general, um, Alec Guinness is known because of Obi Wan Kenobi. Yeah. It was because of of um, Obi Wan Kenobi and and. Um, guinness that ralph took our part i mean he had word had gone out amongst that set sure. that these young americans with their technical and whatever it is they're here and they're they're going to pay for us to be in their movies right. and you know you Clash can make, of the titans too yeah. right yeah and, same and, thing and wow. so um um but oh, i just have uh, there's there's I don't know that I've, uh, I should look and see if someone hasn't written a really good biography of Ralph Richardson because he had an unusual um, affect everywhere, everywhere. He, he was um, not easy to read. Uh, 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 and uh, Cheshire uh, Cat kind of? Or? Well, he, he, um, he just had a. um, He had a, I, I, just, I can't really identify what it is in his uh, interior life that uh-huh. made him like that, but uh, his fascination for things mechanical was very unexpected, but it was very much in evidence. He talked to me about his youth when he discovered, that he, he told me that he had been an awkward child, uh-huh. that he had not fit in comfortably with the other boys at uh, the, the public school. When they say public, he meant whatever private school he was at, sure. boys' school until one day he had to recite something. Um, And he had memorized it and he recited this and he got into it and sort of forgot himself and went into some zone as a boy. And when it ended, he found, he was back in the classroom with all these people staring at him with huge eyes.
0: Wow,
2: He said, it's almost like, what have I done? You know, has have I humiliated myself
0: yeah.
2: or not? But it was, that was the he talked to me about that. I've never forgotten that because I I think a lot of young kids could identify with that feeling of being the outsider.
0: Yeah.
2: But being somehow, you know, something captured his imagination and he transmitted that. Yeah. And it was so unexpected because he was an outsider.
1: Yeah. He revealed yeah. himself.
2: You know, yeah. In, in and love. that's that's what as I remember, I mean, I, 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 now that you've gotten me talking about it and recalling this, which I haven't thought about for many, many years, I should really look into that to see if a biographer has written about that, because he he uh, attributed that moment to the beginnings of interest in theater.
1: I'm sure. I mean, it sounds like a lightning moment, like a, a, a lightning uh, bolt, kind okay. of thunderclap moment. Yeah. Uh, that's extraordinary. That's extraordinary. Uh, you should definitely look into it and... Uh, uh, yeah, I think it, it would do his legacy good to uh, to have um, those moments uh, acknowledged. And,
2: and, and you know, and, you're right, Jeff. I, 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 it's a good suggestion. I, I could, I could put together a little, you know, journalistic yeah. piece and 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 get it published. Because uh,
1: if, there's any, if you want any help, if you need it, just to talk some more. Uh, and we could send you a transcript of this and give you a head start you know like uh with the research and stuff you know but uh i I really think you should i think it'd be great for everyone you know i think you'd really enjoy it too because you kind of lit up while you're talking about it
2: yeah yeah he 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 he, he was one of my favorite things and i for some years thereafter i had a lot of fun telling those stories because they were fresh
0: yeah you
2: know there's a lot of a lot of things that happened in between then and now
1: well, you still remember the stained glass and the dust on the window. Oh, yeah, but that, that,
2: that was really, I mean, I was at the end of my rope. I was in, <laughs> it was an extreme moment. Yeah. I mean, it, it did cost us hundreds and hundreds of pounds in downtime. They were all waiting for us. Yeah. And they knew yeah. those guys, those mixers, they, 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 he'd been around and they'd, you know, oh God, it's Ralph. So right. you know, anything can happen. <laughs> <They> got <laughs>
1: That's terrific. I love well, it. Well,
2: okay. Um, if there's any follow-up, you know how to reach me. I'm uh, I'm here, and I really had fun um, <laughs> resurrecting this stuff,
0: yeah.
2: and I'm, I am glad to know that um, I put a face, actually, to the um, <laughs> the yeah. idea that there's people who remember that movie and remember it fondly.
1: Remember it very fondly. We remember it very fondly, and uh, well, it's a treat. It's It's so nice to hear you say those things. I I have such a good feeling now about this show and about uh, talking to you. And, uh, and I'm going to go check out a bunch of Ralph's movies that I haven't seen. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I'm going to uh, routinely bother you until I read that
2: piece. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. By all means, no, stay in touch.
3: Thank you for tuning into Jeff Mind Mindspace. You just heard Jeff in conversation with director and screenwriter, Matthew Robbins, and we're celebrating the 40th anniversary of Dragon Slayer, which came out uh, in theaters this week in 1981. Um, I know this is a very timely episode, not just because it's the numerical anniversary, but because we've also been talking about other movies that summer on Mindspace, and on social media, lots of people have talked about seeing Indiana Jones and Raiders of the Lost Ark in a double feature with Dragon Slayer. I know lots of heavy metal fans uh, have fond memories of the heavy metal movie, and it's been really heartwarming to hear people reminisce about this enchanted summer, it seems, of 1981. so. We've loved reading all of your guys' stories about how you encountered these movies, whether it was drive-ins or dusty VCRs. Uh, Jeff, how did you first see Dragon Slayer that summer, and what what was what was the zeitgeist?
1: Yeah, that was a, it was a uh, it was a terrific summer, uh, as you say. Um, and I did see Dragon Slayer right around the time I saw, um, you know, Raiders. And I'm trying to think of where I saw it. I think I saw it, there's this one theater uh, in Hollywood, Florida. uh, And I remember it was always incredibly cold inside or it was incredibly hot outside. And that was a theater where I saw Star Wars. And and I'm pretty sure I saw Dragon Slayer there as well. And I remember it had the rocking chair seats, they call them. And the backs, you know, would swivel, um, which was kind of annoying during the movies because they would would make a lot of noise sometimes. But, the uh, I think that summer and the summer that followed it are you know arguably each of them is arguably uh, like the greatest genre summer uh, in history you know I think that you know the other one that probably compares with it would be uh, that summer that uh, the Dark Knight came out when it was uh, Dark Knight, Iron Man, Hancock and uh, Wally uh, you know that that was a great summer as well, was that 2008, I believe? Does that sound for, does that sound right? When does, yeah, that sounds right, like 2008, 2000, 2009. 2009, actually, I think maybe, for Dark Knight. Um, 2008, it was 2008, I think. <laughs> uh, but that was, you know, with Iron Man and Dark Knight and, and all that, that was a great uh, genre summer as well. You know, 82 uh, had Blade Runner and E.T., uh, you know, but '81 had uh, you know, Escape from New York and uh, and Raiders and uh, Dragon Slayer, and it's it's a it's an embarrassment of riches, is what it is.
3: Would you count '81 and '82 as like one unit or one period? Um, if you put given them together, yeah,
1: yeah. If you put them together, I mean, that would be uh, pretty pretty powerful stuff uh and that you know it, it's coming out of uh you know uh, you know everything changed with jaws uh, and then star wars you know changing the way that hollywood did business you know creating the, sort of the blockbuster summer blockbuster the day and date movie uh you know so this is a few years after that and hollywood's responding to that and then also you have the changes that were going on in special effects you know like uh special effects were getting a lot more manageable by 81, uh, is still pre-CG, uh,
0: mm-hmm.
1: well, the first CG movie was Tron, which was in summer of 82, um, uh, but, uh, yeah, I think you, you had this sort of confluence of uh, factors where you're getting all these, uh, really amazing genre stuff, um, and, uh, Uh, It's interesting to look back, you know, because you also had Superman 2, 81. Yeah, uh, I
3: was actually, um, when we were preparing our social posts for Raiders on Heavy Metal, I thought, because Heavy Metal did film reviews in the 80s, I was thinking, how cool would it be if we republished our initial review of Raiders? But we didn't review it. We reviewed Superman (laughs) 2.
1: Oh, uh, well, I can see that. And then
3: I, you, and then there was a bit of a, a a lull in our movie reviews. And I was like, why aren't there any movie reviews? And I was like, oh, because we there was one movie there was one movie that summer that yeah. kind of eclipsed all other movies in our attention. Uh, that's funny. Uh, the, the heavy metal yeah. movie. So we paused on re- reviewing competitors. <laughs> and that's very
1: fun. That's a very good point. Yeah, exactly. They weren't exactly eager to push people to go see uh, a competing title. That's that's actually very yeah. perceptive. I'm looking at um, the list of 81 movies, and this is for the full year, but it also I can see the dates for Summer on see So Raiders of the Lost Ark and Superman 2, Stripes uh, was a big hit. That was the fourth highest grossing movie of the year. So uh, that's a fat Jack, uh, and mm-hmm. then um, Arthur. Uh, so, you know, of the top five movies, Uh, Raiders, Lost Ark, and Superman 2 were the two highest grossing films that year and then you had three comedies, four comedies uh, all geared really toward adults, uh, 9 to 5 Stripes, Arthur, and Cannonball Run Uh, Mm -hmm. so we don't really see that much in movies now like where you would see that many comedies uh, that high up on the list and then there's a James Bond movie, For Your Eyes Only Uh, it was released that summer of 81 Fox and Hound
3: uh, Oh
1: which is with our uh,
3: friend Don Hahn,
1: with our friend Don Hahn, and uh, um, boy, uh, also isn't Kurt Russell in that? Isn't so he had big gear because he escaped from New York as well. Um,
3: yeah, let me look it up.
1: So let's, there was uh, also the American Werewolf, Werewolf in London, uh, which uh, you know, a, a landmark special effects movie. Rick Baker mm-hmm. won an Oscar for that, I think the, his first Oscar was for that. Time Bandits, which I love, which is, uh, you know, the great uh, Mm -hmm. Terry Gilliam from uh, Monty Python and his sort of fantasy stuff. Excalibur was that year. Um, The great Muppet Caper. Clash of the Titans came out that summer. Halloween Two came out Halloween. Uh, Terrific movie Body Heat, which was uh, filmed right where I grew up. Um, uh, it's written by Lawrence Kasdan who also wrote Empire Strikes Back Raging Bull came out in November of 1980 um, and uh, Heavy Metal, that movie um, that year finished number 35 it was the 35th highest grossing film um, it, narrow, uh, it narrowly beat the, um, the re- re-release of Empire Strikes Back Hmm. Which is kind of interesting. Mommy Dearest, also right around there.
3: Oh, um, nice.
1: Yeah, and then some. Lots uh, of
3: cult movies. That's right, and a
1: lot of that's you know, exactly right. And stuff like um, uh, the thirty, uh, finishing number thirty-one is the movie Reds, the Warren Beatty movie that would mm-hmm. end up getting, you know, a slew of Oscar nominations but not win any. Um, Outland, Sean Connery's kind of forgotten science fiction. Uh, deep space kind of noir um
3: not zardoz
1: <laughs> not zardoz not zardoz this is that that movie was still sinking in uh into the 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 world's uh i'm, I'm still processing
3: zardoz
1: good luck good luck with that caveman a really bad film sob not a good film <laughs> scanners well, i forgot scanners came out that year and way down fifty-eight number, uh, the legend of Lone Ranger, which was you know the biggest flop of the year, uh, the big oh. Disney revisitation. I know the, you know they give out the uh, the raspberries. I know that uh, uh, the star of that film. Do you remember who played Lone Ranger?
3: I I do not know of this movie, sadly. Oh, there's
1: yeah, well, and you it's uh it's easy to not know about. Uh, it was a it was a huge. Uh, uh, setback for westerns uh you know uh and part of the ongoing uh argument against doing westerns this was one of the big failures but it's uh clinton spillsbury was the man in the mask that was an actor uh he is he won the raspberry that year for worst acting and um, i never heard of another another film for him but i'm sure he tried his best and i don't
3: yeah, sure. I feel like, I mean, if you're an up and coming actor, you know, the kind that they normally choose for those star making roles that it's, yeah. you're, you normally have chops, I I feel like if the movie as a whole was bad that it might have been due to direction. Um,
1: That's right. That's right. Um, so,
3: I mean, in addition to quality, like, it's interesting that such a traditional but you can see how it would be like a tentpole movie, like with the Americana and the the interest and in adventure. Why that failed, while so many other movies that year succeeded, um, especially genre movies that are quirky and bizarre.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, it's 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 always hard to you know predict. Sometimes it's just about competition. I mean, I know the, the following year, like Blade Runner came out the same, or just maybe the following weekend from ET. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, sometimes you're just in the wrong place at the wrong time. Uh, but I mean, Blade Runner could, was one of the biggest. I mean, it's hard to think of a movie that did worse at the movie theater, uh, did worse in theatrical release, uh, either critically or commercially than Blade Runner. And to have just completely be. Mm-hmm. reevaluated uh all these years later and now is you know considered just an absolute classic. Uh sometimes things just miss their their mark. You know, like looking down the list of the 120 movies that were ranked for 1981, you know, I see some tremendous movies at the bottom of the list. Uh for instance, um let's see uh Thief. Number 92 is the great Michael Mann movie, James Conn. It's one, of just a tremendous movie. Uh, Gallipoli, number 87. Peter Weir's awesome movie about uh, World War I uh, and uh, with Mel Gibson, a key early role for Mel Gibson. Um, And then Dragon Slayer, which we've discussed, which is certainly a great movie. And Atlantic City, number 71, uh, with Susan Sarandon and and Burt Lancaster. So, you know, it's we it's easy uh we're all guilty on some uh, level of associating commercial success with uh credibility but uh as one of my bosses used to say you know jeff the, the big mac's the best-selling meal in america that doesn't mean it's the best hmm. uh and there's something to be said for that so but yeah there's a, a lot of great uh movies scanners uh that's another great sci-fi movie you could you could put together a hell of a uh genre film festival just by going to mm-hmm. this year you know you could do a 1981 year uh, festival or 1982 and you would just have tons and tons of things to watch
3: yeah you've mentioned you've mentioned various like technical reasons for the the surge in genre movies like special effects and then also the economic testing grounds of earlier movies like Star Wars. Were there any do you think social, or cultural factors leading to interest in films like that?
1: Yeah, I think so. You know, I think um, uh, at the in the eighties we had, had a huge surge in horror, uh, and I think uh, that uh, some of that is is driven by social things, depending on depending on the horror films and and, and what their their messages are. You know, um, and then um, uh, you know there was a, a lot of economic. Uh,
0: mm-hmm.
1: inspiration you know in uh in England you know you, you have the punk movement uh and and uh starting up in like 77 78 and uh uh you would see that affect film as well and that, and that was a, a lot of that was driven by you know a perception of opportunity and 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 government and uh, you know the the leadership of Margaret Thatcher led, led to she was a of, you know, a catalyst for a lot of um, socially relevant entertainment uh, in the States, you know, Reaganomics and and the Reagan administration Mm -hmm. starting in 1980, you would see, you know, it's, it's hard not to see the influence of that. And if you look at movies in a few years later, like, you know, like even like a Robocop um, and some of the things that uh, those films are uh, commenting on seem like that they, uh, they were unique to that time. Uh, or at least, uh, you know, uh, certainly rooted in that time. Um, science fiction in general, you know, yeah, there's a lot of the anxiety about the, you know, Soviet Union, the, uh, uh, the Cold War uh, still underway at that point, you know, and you would see that inf- influence come, coming across in films, if not in subject matter, if not in uh, tone, certainly in subject matter. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you have like the only science fiction movie that Clint Eastwood ever made. I think. Well, let's be careful about that. I don't know if Space Cowboys would count as science fiction or not. But uh, you know, Firefox. You know, it's such a, a Reagan era movie. Um, yeah. So there's a lot, uh, a lot going on, and also just the the uh, the, the changes in um, uh, The generation of filmmakers too. I mean, I think you know, you know, George Lucas and and Steven Spielberg, uh, really sort of hitting their stride in the the late '70s and mid '70s. You see a lot of their generation kind of responding to their success and and stepping up. You know, I think, you know, you look at Ridley Scott with uh, his first film was uh, The Duelist, which was a period piece, Uh, but his second one was Alien. And it was it was directly a result of seeing Star Wars, you know, and and um, and then Blade Runner uh, back to back these two amazing films, and and I, I think that uh, that was Ridley looking at what George Lucas and Steven Spielberg were doing, and then running that through this prism of his own, uh, you know, his own aesthetic and his own uh, uh, choices as far as subject matter and stuff like that, but. If you don't have Star Wars and, and uh, uh, Close Encounters, I don't think that you have Alien and Blade Runner right after it.
3: Yeah. Do you know much about like the state of fantasy as separate from sci-fi? Because I know in the in the yeah. in our interview, Robbins he talked about how the font for Dragon Slayer and the aesthetic of the posters had later became a cliche in like eighties paperback side or fantasy you know the kind that you see at your library that's now being sold for a dollar and uh i i have fond memories of reading those as a kid like mercedes lackey and you know all sorts of just pulpy fantasy novels with elaborate medieval text on the front Um, absolutely
1: yeah yeah
3: and i know it's it's interesting that Dragon Slayer picked that aesthetic coming off of the 70s, and I tend to associate fantasy in the 70s with more like new wave, sexual, subversive kind of stuff. But
1: yeah, yeah, and yeah, there's um, and then there's that sort of uh, hard to define fantasy film that, like, you know, Heaven Can Wait or uh, Milagro Beanfield War or, or uh, Alice the Woody All movie, where it's like magical realism or. Mm -hmm. uh, what
3: is what is heaven can wait i just know the meatloaf song
1: oh yeah um heaven can wait is the uh uh warren Beatty. uh he Mm -hmm. did a movie about it's a remake it was kind of a curious thing It was a remake of a movie uh uh uh, here comes mr jordan about a guy who goes to heaven by accident there's like a uh a uh bureaucratic error that it lands him at the pearly gates before his time. So he's sent back to earth and hijinks ensues, you know. Um, So it was supposed to be a boxing movie. Warren Beatty was gonna direct it and and, uh, he wanted Muhammad Ali to start. He was gonna turn Muhammad Ali into a a movie star. He thought that uh, with Ali's charisma and and prominence and just um, uh, the idea of him in a boxing film, uh, and this is the same year Raging Bull came out, right? uh, he uh, wanted Ali to do it, but Ali wouldn't, uh, you know, didn't go for it. And so Warren decided to, he would star in it, but he wasn't going to be in a boxing movie. So he turned it into a football movie. And the premise is that he's a Los Angeles Rams quarterback. And uh, he's, he's jogging and he gets hit by a car, but he wasn't supposed to. So he ends up in heaven and they send him back and he inhabits a different body but you still see Warren Beatty on, on screen and ends up becoming a football hero and takes the Rams to the Super Bowl and um, they lose well I won't say what that happens uh, but they they, they they play the Pittsburgh Steelers. It ended up being a forecast of reality because the following year uh, the Steelers and the Rams actually played in the Super Bowl, uh, which is kind of kind of funny. Um, but yeah, that kind of fantasy movie where it's not really you know, swords and dinosaurs, or, um, you know, something that's uh, visibly supernatural. It's, it's just more, it's a kind of a, mm-hmm. a, a kind of quiet existential thing. That movie ended up having to wait just real quickly, is was, it ended up being nominated for best, best, uh, it, it ended up being nominated for quite a few Oscars. I was going to say for best picture, but now I just want to check. But it was nominated for a bunch of Oscars. So <laughs> just, let's, let's cut that part out.
0: Okay.
1: So, um, but it was it's it's not a tremendous movie. I don't think. I don't think it ages that well. Uh, but 1978, can Wait. Um, it was him. Uh, it was Warren and Buck Henry, the guy that wrote The Graduate,
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, and uh, Julie Christie, Charles Grodin, who just who just passed away, and James Mason. Uh, it's got uh, a lot of really cool aspects to it, it's a feel-good kind of romantic uh, fantasy. But um, yeah, the, the, the more formal kind of fantasy stuff that we're used to, uh, there was a lot going on because like I said, Clash of the Titans and Excalibur uh, and Dragon Slayer, there, there, there was um, an urge to do those movies. I think you know there was always interest in them I think that they're expensive to do. And also for a lot of, a lot of time, uh, for a long time, people were really worried that they'd just be cheesy because it was really hard to realize those things on the screen and make them look good. You know, Dragon Slayer did, as we said, during the interview, uh, you know, a really good job with the dragon and stuff, but a lot of movies mm-hmm. didn't do a good job with that stuff. Um, and it was, I think once, you know, fast forwarding down to Lord of the Rings, once those movies came out, uh, I think that's when you, people realize in Hollywood, you can create anything on a screen that you can create on a page now. Like you can, mm-hmm. you, that, that's why we saw the Marvel movies come up as well. It's not like people didn't think those stories were good before, it's just that it was really hard to make a movie of Spider-Man and make it look good. Um, the TV show for Spider-Man looked not good. You know, it was a pretty strong uh, indication of how that would look uh, if you didn't have CGI, so. Um, sometimes we think people are doing things because they discover them. Really, sometimes they're doing them just because they have the uh, the changing ability to to realize mm-hmm. on the screen better.
3: No, I love the practical effects in the movie and how grounded it felt. Uh, Robbins, one thing he mentioned, I had to look it up, but he he mentioned Weltanschauung, which is okay. a, a German worldview kind of term for how people perceive the world. And sometimes it, it has like aesthetic connotations. So you can definitely pick up on the, the way that dirt and grit and mud must have influenced these people's lives to a very intimate degree. Yeah. Uh, my favorite scene from that movie is the scene where, what's the main character's name? The sorcerer kid. <laughs> Oh, no. um, is great. going to discover Valerian's secret uh while they're they're bathing. And it's like set in a pond, and you see in the establishing shot, there's a dragonfly that flies kind of in front of the camera and, and then flips off. And you can hear it. It's like <laughs> oh, yeah. and just be, you know, I feel like a, a movie now would just CGI in some sort of glistening light airy dragonfly but like you can you can tangibly feel that dragonfly's wings in front of your face as an observer of the scene in the movie i think i was listening to my headphones and i literally felt it in my ears it was so great and it was you know a real dragonfly it was big chunky
1: (laughs) absolutely yeah that's it's a it's a good point and it is it's, it's it's always uh Anything that puts you in that world like that mm-hmm. makes you feel like you're sitting right there is is uh, obviously a, a great thing for a film. Um, it, it's interesting the, uh, the the tactile effects of the world on a, a production too. Like you know, the movie Deliverance was filmed in and, and you know Ned Beatty uh, just passed away, and I was thinking a lot about Deliverance, and that film was one of the few that I know that was filmed in the the same order. As the story, you know, Hollywood typically doesn't do that because they, because of the, the dynamics and the imperatives of, of film production, they, they'll group uh, scenes together by who's in them, you know, if they have actors for a certain duration, or, if they have a, a location, they'll they'll shoot scenes uh, at the same place that appear chronologically in different times in the movie, but uh, Deliverance, since they're going down a river, they they don't do that. And there's a, uh, John Voight has a watch and, and you see it smash early in that film and it's cracked and the crack gets worse and it fills with water and, and then it fogs over. And, and you're watching his watch during the movie. And uh, if, if that had been like a, a, a modern film, um, that would have been a continuity issue. They would have either got rid of the watch or they would have to find a, you know, find a break three more watches to make sure it stays broken the same way and stuff. But here you're watching it um, you know kind of fall apart uh during the movie and, and it actually is one of those things like you're saying so like a little tiny um uh, touchstone moment uh that puts you in place and time and and makes the the consequences of the film feel all the more real
3: yeah there's this there's this great essay by the the sci-fi fantasy writer samuel delaney where he talks um, about his experience um growing up as a, as a black kid reading Conan and how something he really liked, he's, it's in a book called The Jewel Hinge Job, but he liked the experience of the quote unquote, the marketplace that, you know, when the character comes into a new village, you see just this uh, expansive, life from like you know CD brothels to vendors to people heckling you to you know kids rolling in the street with the dogs and stuff and how he just he he really liked it because it 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 made him feel I don't know I mean I guess it's it included isn't the right word because the the main character, the Conan or whatever sort of sorcery protagonist, the new gun in town, you're not really like included in this culture, but it it allows you to experience it in a very kind of visceral way where you feel involved, I guess is a better word um, on a physical level with with other people, which was something that Delaney felt, you know, was lacking in his upbringing with, you know, literal segregation. so
1: yeah yeah no that's it's that's a very interesting point yeah you get that immersive feel like you know like Mm you 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 um it's like star wars in the cantina scene like you know that's when that universe comes alive in a lot of ways um for the audiences you know you step into that cantina and the music's playing and you know these characters are doing all these different things and you don't know who they are or why they look the way they do and you know no movie had ever just i don't know that any film in history before that, had just casually introduced so many different, you know, planet species, uh, you know, like uh, mm-hmm. it used to be uh, in a science fiction movie, there was the alien you were dealing with. And that was it. Like it, we could only, you know, handle one alien at a time. And um, that was the genius of that cantina scene and the genius of Star Wars in general, just how pitted and beat up the landscape, uh, the land speeder was and C-3PO with his, his, uh, Essentially, his uh, primer leg, you know, the replaced leg. So you know, Mm -hmm. you get the feeling that life existed in this place before the movie started. Uh, The action that you're seeing on the scene on screen uh, is a result of things that have happened that you didn't see, uh, but they were all part of the continuity of this place. And and those things do make it feel real. And you know, I think that goes—that's a root of fantasy. You know, I think that that immersive detail, you know, that's why Tolkien resonates so much with, uh, with fans of Star Wars and uh, Harry Potter and all the other sort of fantasy uh, franchises that really have this comprehensive detail of place and language and,
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, you know, incantations and spells and, uh, you know, all the, all the details that make these places uh, come alive. I yeah, I right.
3: should I should add, as someone who took Latin and studied classics in college, the Latin spells and dragon slayer.
0: Uh-huh.
3: Absolutely on point. They're delightful um, and, and, the, and they're they're accurate. You can tell that whoever wrote them didn't just look up the translation that they they actually make grammatical sense. <laughs> Yeah. And the pronunciation is classical Roman pronunciation. I'm not sure that would have been accurate for for the um medieval England or whatever. I'm not sure whether the oh. the yeah. they would have had ecclesiastical, what's known as ecclesiastical, Roman influenced uh or Roman church influenced Latin pronunciation sure. or whether they would have had vestiges of the actual, you know, pagan Roman pronunciation, but it's really great. Um, yeah. yeah, the way Ralph Richardson declaims the Latin—it's stellar.
1: Yeah, that's pretty good stuff.
3: Yeah, um, when you're talking about the grittiness and the lived-in feel, do you think that genre films drew influence from quote-unquote non-genre films or any action movies? Because when I think of like a '70s movie, uh, I, I I think of I think of stuff that definitely feels like that. Like I feel like Dirty Harry. Taxi driver, I, I associate the 70s very much with the kind of gritty, uh, gritty feel yeah. aesthetically.
1: Yeah, you know, you see, you know, at one point you would have uh, films about crime or Big City where, yeah, uh, you know, I remember watching the old Superman TV series when I was a kid, the reruns of the George Reeves, uh, George Reeves, uh, Superman and like the bank robbers wore tie. You know, like everybody wore ties. Like there's nobody. You know, everybody. Uh, they they might be a uh, fugitive from justice, but you know, they're they're certainly uh, going to have pressed shirts. You know, because it's, it's, let's not get crazy. Um, and you know, yeah, that that that, that definitely changed in in the '70s uh, with films like Taxi Driver, and Mean Streets, Scorsese films. You know, you got a sense of New York, the menace of New York, and this that's the decade. When uh, you know crime was going crazy in New York, and and uh, um, the subways and and uh, you know the violence uh, that came across uh, in the sort of sordid world that that Scorsese presents there, um, and and in f- fantasy, it's that and also kind of a, a drawing. I think in some ways on the Dickensian kind of. Uh, uh, squalor you know i i mentioned uh, time bandits uh if you look at the films of terry gilliam uh, like fisher king um a few years later and um time bandits and uh he has this just fantastic squalor i mean nobody does squalor better than uh terry gilliam uh in the fantasy realm i mean it's just uh and and also with uh, 12 monkeys you know even later than that the the sense of uh the, uh, the messiness of the world and, and uh, that uh, you know even magic doesn't arrive clean you know everything mm-hmm. is everything is, 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 is messy and, and kind of uh, squalid or uh, chaotic.
3: Yeah I think there's an anecdote about when Vonnie Python when he was first directing the, the plague village scene the iconic mm-hmm. scene from holy grail and he was like, we need we need everyone just covered in mud. And people were like, well, is that feasible? Would the medieval people really be covered in mud? Like you why would people literally, literally be rolling in piles of shit on the road? And he's like, no, you don't understand. Yeah. <laughs> Doesn't matter whether they would have actually done that. It's 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 a joke about the perceived environment. And-
0: yeah. Yeah. You know, and, and
3: I mean, I think I would argue that in terms of historical movies about the medieval period, that's one of the most influential scenes ever filmed, because I I can't unsee it whenever I see any other film that depicts the Middle Ages like that.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's true. It's and, so
3: perfect.
1: Well, and, you know, what's really interesting, too, I think, is, you know, in talking about like movies from 81, if, 82, if you look at the films, uh, there's there's two films that really became um, like a North, each of them a North star uh, for decades and decades. And you can almost put it into these two categories, you know, Blade Runner with its aesthetic, the anachronistic sort of film noir, LA uh, just uh, kind of the cyberpunk and uh, which wasn't even a term at that point. I don't think. And, and um, just the, uh, you know, the, the style of it and the aesthetic of it. And then, you know, George Miller's Mad Max movies, you know, so you have Road Warrior and Mad Max, and, and uh, uh, you know, then Thunderdome after that. But the, the post apocalyptic kind of uh, world that George Miller presents uh, for that character, those two movies would become, and ones similar to them. But they would become almost a template. Like, you know, like you, you envision the future in a sci fi movie, you either go kind of t- toward one direction or the other. You know, like those are the futures that we see often, you know, like, and there's variations on it. Terminator would be so, sort of, you know, kind of maybe almost a mix of the two, you know, maybe. Um, but uh, when we think, visual, visualize the future, it's like a Rorschach test. You know, do you see, you know, uh, Blade Runner or do you see Mad Max?
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and it felt like for years and years and years that filmmakers really l- decided that they were going to do one or the other. And sometimes, to, I think, comic effects um, or cliched effects. But, you know, Waterworld, um, which is a, a film that has been most successful apparently as a Universal Studios live action attraction. You, you know, the guy mm-hmm. you go and watch, the only place Waterworld really Thrilled crowds and still packs them in. It was universal because they loved doing the, the stunt work for that show. Um, but uh, I always wondered why is everybody so filthy in this movie? Like, you know, it's like they, they were influenced by the Mad Max thing. It's like, you have all these people, they're just, just filthy, squalid and stuff. And I'm like, they're in the water. There's, like, there's no land. There's no dirt. What the hell? Like, why are these people filthy? These people should be the cleanest. I mean, they should be like salt scrubbed. Like, really clean. And you could say, okay, well, what about their engines? You know, well, you got to make oil somewhere. I don't know where they're refining this stuff. I don't know where all this grease is coming from. Like, why is everybody in this movie like kind of wiping their face like they should be sunburnt and salt scrubs clean? Um, but uh, we, you know, when we think of the future, apparently, that's what we think of. So. Always yeah, I think, that I, made...
3: think, I think there's a kind of projected nostalgia too. I think lots of us deeply yearn for a more survivalist, simple, yeah. materially concerned world. I mean, yeah. if you think about the 80s at the time these are arising, I feel like that's when everything becomes very glistening and commercial and easy to access mm. from yeah. malls to, like you said, Happy Meals to... Yeah. Um, neon and <laughs> yeah
0: yeah uh, the, okay. the
3: aesthetic is very synthetic in the 80s with the bright colors and the you know plastic jewelry
1: yeah and okay. it's, it's funny it's because you know there's the, the future as people envision it so like you know like uh and the future had been squeaky clean in movies for years you know like you look at 2001 or you know go back to like Forbidden Planet or any of the you know, the aliens always arrive very impeccably dressed, like everything, or, you know, um, not so much in 2001, but the the squeaky clean, Mm -hmm. uh, shiny, uh, you know, kind of ideal. Um, Sterile. Yeah, and then the 80s was us trying to live in that future, Mm -hmm. you know, like, uh, that was like kind of the Tomorrowland version of it, Um, but uh, yeah, it's it's interesting to think about what would film have been like if Blade Runner hadn't been reclaimed and if Mad Max just never been released in the States like would would we've still reached the same kind of uh, aesthetic choices that uh, that those two films came to represent uh, You know, were they a culmination of something or were they an inception of something I'm not sure but I like those guys a lot the, the, those two filmmakers are two of my favorite filmmakers that and they could not be more different. Ridley Scott and George Miller. Mm-hmm. Um, this is really, really interesting to see uh, the, the, the influence of their vision uh, because it really does yeah. echo. You know, it really does.
3: Should I should I include a vanity promotion of heavy metal that both of those had their origins in?
1: <laughs> That's right. <laughs> in That's heavy true. metal
3: content, yeah.
1: Yeah, they both were definitely heavily influenced by it. You know, Ridley. Speaks very openly about that, and uh, uh, and and yeah, gives nods to Mobius mm-hmm. and to um, to all the the great pioneers of the heavy metal scene. You know, the heavy metal okay. Metal metal okay.
3: Scene. So you mentioned you mentioned the great peaks of of genre content as being the early '80s, '81, '82, and then 2009, 2008. Would you consider the past Marvel decade as being a peak, or do you think that we're due for some sort of counter-resurgence in contrast to the kind of high baseline of consistent sci-fi content that we've gotten.
1: Yeah, you know, I, I mean, I think the Marvel movies, there's been, you know, a lot of debate about, like, they're, you know, uh, trying to frame their, their, uh, you know, artistic viability or their 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 accomplishment. And I'm a big fan, you know, I mean, uh, I, I, I love what they've done uh, to, to attain this, Interlocking universe of now, you know, two dozen movies. Um, you know, you couldn't have a strong director system uh, or a strong director format because if, if each director is going to do their own vision and stuff like that, these movies wouldn't fit together. And some, and a lot of people don't like that. That's that's the root of the Scorsese and the Coppola criticisms: mm-hmm. is that you know it makes for a strong producer, Kevin Feige, and then lesser strong director. But to answer your question, um, I think. Uh, I think we're going to see a correction, uh, a market correction on on some superhero stuff. I think it, it will will get to a point where it's going to start to recede, uh, especially after, now that we're fully into the kind of the satirical or deconstructionist kind of mode. You know, I think after you can only have so many Deadpool movies before it makes it really hard to do a very earnest kind of superhero movie. You know. Yeah, I, mean, I I think you might see a, a correction at some point where the pendulum swings back and we have, mm-hmm. uh, you know, it's harder to make a superhero movie because people are gonna feel like they've seen it, you know, and they I don't know how many, mm-hmm. how long that takes. Maybe mm-hmm. I'm wrong, maybe it
0: just keeps going, but uh, it seems to me it, it, it it'll kind of eat
1: itself a little bit.
3: Do you think we're gonna ever have more fantasy? I know, I feel like the past, like, as a, as a fantasy fan who was awoken by the Lord of the Rings movies in the early 2000s I feel like my entire life since then has been watching a series of failed franchise starts from the movie industry like I feel like there's been just yeah. I feel like fantasy as a genre in cinema is, is marked by like peaks and then like long valleys of, nice. of of attempts um do you think do you think we're gonna get a new revival are people hungry for that do you think i know amazon is trying to do lord of the rings again
0: that's right
1: something
3: to the tune of like a hundred million dollars per episode like it's ridiculous
1: it's it's uh it's extremely intense yeah it's um and i think f- for them they're the long tail is why they're they're doing that is that they think it'll have value for generations <laughs> um yeah you know i, I think fantasy does kind of come uh there's an ebb and flow and it. it's of course there's like the Kind of a high fantasy, so to speak, you know, like, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, like for, you know, Narnia and the Hell, Hans uh, uh, Labyrinth and uh, the Lord of the Rings and uh, the Harry Potter movies, you know, the the that kind of fantasy, I think that's the kind of ebb and flow the most, uh, the stuff that feels like a period piece, of, even if it's mm-hmm. a, a real period. Um, but then you know, the, there's the less formalized fantasy, uh, and again, that's like those kind of magical realism. And mm-hmm. but it doesn't have that sort of uh, good versus evil on yeah. epic uh, level. I think that's yeah. kind of what you're talking about. Um, I think you know, it just a, it just depends on the um, on the settings. It, it's you know. Um, it's hard to create those immersive worlds, and, and uh, a lot of times now, when you see a fancier sci-fi uh, introduction of franchise, like like you were saying, these sort of would be launches, they seem to me they're driven more by Wiz ideas than by story. A lot of mm-hmm. times, uh, it's like, oh wow, we can do, you know, uh, uh, a story that has, you know, uh, this aspect of uh, game of thrones like you'll see a lot of game of thrones knockoffs but they're mm-hmm. driven by what if he uh it was a place like this and and this happened they're situational but they're not driven by the character yeah. like and and i think that that's um you know one of the issues that kind of dogs it because then it, it 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 when people used to call science fiction hardware movies what they were really saying is that i don't care about these characters like the ideas of spaceship flying across the screen it only had so much appeal to some people if if there wasn't a story there that really mattered um Mm -hmm. so it's just about finding the the right stories i mean shape of water uh is a movie that you know uh as long as movies come out like that uh you'll you'll keep seeing these these fantastic worlds and these fantastical concepts because uh it's also a story that people can really kind of get into and and hold on to, I think like Golden Compass maybe might be an example of one where it's, it's more about ideas than about characters. Like, you know, like I have, you know, the Golden Compass movie uh, didn't lead to a franchise and then the TV series, you know, uh, came back at it with a different take because the, the material seems so rich, but um, it's just, it's, it's holding on to the human in the middle of the fantastic is, is, is the, uh, the, the stuff that really makes things last
3: i think Are mm-hmm. there any properties fantasy properties like that that you'd like to see a, a new yeah, well, kind you know, of, from... a new tilt taken at it if we're keeping with the medieval jousting metaphor
1: <laughs> well you know i love i uh it's not necessarily pure good versus evil fantasy but it certainly has fantastical trappings and settings uh, but Sandman the Sandman, uh, the, Sandman mm-hmm. the DC Comics epic you know it's I, uh, I adore that story and uh, and I would love to see like a really terrific telling of that uh, and it's a challenge it's challenging material I mean there's a hundred issues of comics you know which part of it do you start with which part do you leave out um, the character isn't necessarily um, doesn't necessarily lend himself to uh, a, a very human story arc you know i mean mm-hmm. the god of dreams is, is elusive um but that's one i would really like to see just because i, I enjoyed that so much um
3: i think they might be priming for that and with the yeah. the very star-studded audio audiobook audio play i don't know if you'd call it audio adaptation
1: yeah yeah audio ad- adaptation um mm-hmm. yeah i think you're right and uh, it's 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 really intriguing to think about who would play who and, and uh, the casting for that stuff is always fun. Uh, on the classic kind of shelf, uh, what's No, I mean that would be the one that springs to mind the most. I can't think of a, a bookshelf one that really desperately needs to be made in my mind. Um I think a really cool Conan movie would be great. Uh, they've tried, mm-hmm. you know, uh, multiple times. The last time with Jason Momoa, you know, and Ron Perlman, um, but that's that's a tough character to crack because so much of it on the page. He's he's he, he doesn't talk a lot, and he doesn't have a lot of close friends. So, like to tell a story. Um, that's, you can tell a story on a page with that character easier than you can on the screen because he doesn't really, uh, there's not a lot of exposition. Uh, so that's a challenge. Yeah. But.
3: It would also, I feel like attempts to expand the character beyond the stoic and gruff. Right. Uh, yeah. Even in interactions with Conan fans I've had, like they get pissed. Right. Like, I think I made some innocent comment, like, it would be really nice, like, to see, like, a sweet side of Conan, just, just for a little bit. And people were like, but then it wouldn't be Conan. How could you be saying this? You obviously don't know anything about Conan. So. Right. Uh, <laughs> yeah,
1: it's true. That's true. Yeah, it's, yeah, he's like Judge Dredd, you know, the, like, in the comics, Judge Dredd has never taken his helmet off. Like, you've never seen his face, you know, and, and Stallone, like, first thing he did was take his mask off and everybody's like, I'm out. And, yeah, it, it's, you know, rules are meant to be broken, but then also, you know, uh, holding on to the authenticity or the core of a character, what makes that character sticky yeah. uh, in the mind of the public is, is key. Yeah. It's a dark that, I think
3: the 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 taking off the mask and breaking of archetype was like the moment that made Dragon Slayer from like oh this is a really good enjoyable movie to like oh my god this movie is so well done is when you when they revealed that Vermithrax was really just trying to feed her
0: yeah
3: or his it's babies the whole time and yeah. then like when it sees its its babies who were killed and gets angry I was like oh my god
0: yeah, yeah.
1: it's so
3: simple but so
0: <laughs>
1: yeah elemental so yeah, effective it's, yeah 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 it's simple because it's uh it's it's that level that it reaches you know uh that elemental core um yeah and and the the kind of the tragedy of it is uh it's hard not to identify with it. And then that's, that's the yeah. success, is if you're watching a fancy movie and you're identifying with a dragon, that's, the, that's unexpected. Mm-hmm. So that, and especially at that time. Although Pete's dragon also sought similar middle ground with the audience in a different way. Mm-hmm.
3: I think the reboot was, was very well-reviewed, though. So. Yeah. yeah. Yeah.
1: But um, Just don't let anybody do Wizard of Oz. Just don't let them do that, you know? I uh, feel also, like there's
3: been like 10 failed like or like sci-fi or, or reboot or dark adaptations of Wizard of Oz that have all like been on TV or have failed except for Wicked. Yeah
1: yeah yeah well and that, that James Franco thing yeah. uh, oh. uh, which I didn't see but it's uh, I guess it had some mild success
3: I don't know. Uh, but, uh, I don't yeah, think it was very fondly I don't think anyone recalls any wonderful feelings from that movie. Yeah, that's why yeah, Oz of the Great and Powerful.
1: Yeah, I think it's gonna lose traction. It's a shame, because I really like uh, Sam Raimi. Like, a, yeah, I really like Sam Raimi. But um, yeah, it's, it's interesting. I, I don't think they should do that again. Um, does, did you, have you read those books, the Wizard of Oz books? No, the a long
3: time books.
1: ago. Yeah, they're crazy. They're yeah, nice. I nice. remember the
3: pig baby is like was really disturbing to me as a kid. The Tin Man
1: chops off his—I mean, he ends up he, he, he chops himself up. Like that's not a—that's not a—that's not a movie I want to watch. That's a lot. But uh, maybe maybe they should get uh, Eli Roth to do a Tin Man movie, and then it's going thats gonna be completely, you know, because he'll chop himself up with the axe, and it'll just be really bloody and awesome. I'm out for that,
0: <laughs> so.
3: All right, well, thanks so much for talking. Uh, it was a great conversation. And if if you as the audience hasn't seen Dragon Slayer or any of these movies, we strongly recommend you check them out. Um, as you can see that there's, there's a lot of fertile uh, thinking that you can do about the arts when you look across great periods of time
1: yeah. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. Yeah, you're right. And you can connect dots that people don't even expect, like Game of Thrones. Who would expect Dragon Slayer to have influenced something like Game of Thrones, but he clearly did, you know, and uh, it's interesting to see the, the lines that connect things across time uh, and across all these magical realms.